0: Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment
1: Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance speakers include leaders from cdp emirates environment group tnfd ctrace COA, and more summit advisors include city and schneider electric visit bloomberglivecom slash sbs 2024 to learn more
2: this is the bloomberg surveillance podcast i'm tom keen along with jonathan farrow and lisa abramowitz join us each day for insight from the best and economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment, subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance on Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Deutsche Bank for David Fulkerts Landau said in the intellectual structure on equities and asset allocation, chief global strategist, Binkham Chata joins us this morning uh, with uh, DB. Binky, you nailed the bull market. It took a while to happen. The Chata market, the Chata bull market took a while to happen. And with a vengeance, you nailed this. And when we were talking, going to, to going live here, you make clear 10% of the people have participated and 90% of the people have been left behind. What's the next leg like? like for 90% of the people that have missed this October market?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, for them, you know, and the distinction that I was drawing was, you know, we've had a move up in equity positioning, so we have a simple sort of Z score plus minus one band. Uh, and, you know, we were at the bottom last year. That was the reason for the call for a positioning squeeze. Positioning today is sitting in the middle of the band. Uh, but the entire move in positioning up has come really from systematic strategies, as vol has come down from extremely elevated levels to still very elevated levels outside, uh, I would say, you know, especially driven by really rates vol. Uh, Discretionary investors, which, you know, in terms of assets under management or I would say Eight to one uh, in terms of relative size to systematic strategies, their positioning has been what I would describe as firmly underweight for the last year. In uh, you know a very narrow can I, can range. Can I translate firmly sure. underweight as <laughs> polite shot attack? For it long. It? <laughs> so the participation has been uh, you know minimal to zero to non-existent. Be nice, uh, this week, what we are seeing is basically uh, some move up in what we put in our positioning measures, but it's really a sentiment indicator, and that's the AAII uh, bull bear spread. And that's moved up uh, for the first time. Whether or not that actually translates into increased allocations, we have to wait and see.
4: The call from here, from where we are at about 4,300 out to 45, just reading your research last night from mm-hmm. the last week or so, mm-hmm. it feels like it's all about earnings. Can you pair this view about earnings with what's happening on the other side of the research team with Matt Lazzetti and Deutsche Bank ultimately looking for a recession. Can you pair the two views at the moment, Binky?
3: Oh, absolutely. So that's really easy because they are the same view. The 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 view. So uh, uh, my earnings numbers tee off of our house economics forecast, uh, but with a small twist. I would say remember that the S and P five hundred gets thirty to forty percent of its earnings from the rest of the world. So I have uh, you know a, a, a sales weighted global GDP measure. Obviously, for U.S. equities, you know, uh, the U.S. economy matters a lot. Uh, We have a framework. Uh, I'm going to leave that aside for a second as to exactly what it is. But it tees off of basically our house economics forecast. So it's really a translation issue, if you want. Uh, It embodies a recession in Q4 and Q1. Uh, The things to note about it are that the forecast is for a pretty mild recession, Number two, you know, we do have growth happening until then, and that means that the recession kicks in from a higher level in terms of uh, earnings. Uh, And, and, you know, what I would uh, uh, emphasize is that the equity market, when it looks at uh, aggregate earnings like the S&P 500's earnings, tends to look year on year. And year on year, you know, we are... Still negative in terms of growth. It's slightly less negative than uh, 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 you know the prior quarter, but uh, it's still negative. Um, but remember that you know when we look at all macro series, uh, we look quarter on quarter, which uh, in uh, you know equities we call sequential growth. And our estimate of sequential growth uh, in S and P five hundred earnings in Q one uh, on a seasonally adjusted basis is a solid five percent. And I would emphasize that's not annualized.
5: Markets are not the economy, and you have to just keep repeating that markets are not the economy. Markets. So John was mentioning that earlier, and I am wondering whether this could be the start of. A BULL MARKET, EVEN THOUGH THE U.S. HAS NOT YET HAD A FULL-BLOWN RECESSION.
3: Yeah. So, so, you know, there's two sort of elements about uh, the recession that I would emphasize. This is arguably the most well-telegraphed recession. Recessions, in my view, in terms of their impact on financial markets, uh, are not really about, you know, a couple of quarters of negative growth where everybody agrees that it's uh, modest and temporary because the market's going to look through that, uh, the market's meant to look through that. Uh, it, 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 You know, if you listen to corporates on earnings calls, uh, we are at the point where we've been talking about recessions for at least three, the, the, the impending recession basically for at least three quarters. And so, you know, uh, 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 corporates are, you know, already responding. And the idea I would put on the table is that, you know, it's very possible that uh, the, the recession slowdown, part of that has already, you know, been brought forward, if you want. Um, if, if, if a recession is very well anticipated, it's, it's not very, you know, there's little shock value to make you uh, risk averse. So, there will be some negative impacts, but, you know, a lot of the multipliers come really from risk aversion. And uh, it's, uh, you know, the concept of uh, anticipated risk aversion, uh, you know, an anticipated shock is not a shock. (laughs) to,
5: To tie this all together and to end where we began, do you think that we are seeing durable signs of a broadening out?
3: Uh, I think that it gets pretty choppy from here because the positioning squeeze that I spoke about at the beginning—that's mostly basically been done. I mean, as you you know, as Tom mentioned, uh, a VIX at fourteen and thirteen. Uh, you know, the, the biggest driver of systematic strategies is decline in vol, and we are not looking for uh, uh, you know vol to really go down from here. Uh, we are not really looking for discretionary investors to raise their positioning because, as you as you said earlier, there is this very long list of concerns that. Uh, that they are focused on, in on, uh, and and I don't think the resolution of those is easy. So we're going to continue to have a tug of war. But the demand supply the positioning squeeze is done. But the demand supply balance still looks, uh, you know, it, 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 it constructive. So I would say a grind higher, forty five hundred by year end. Uh, but it should 5, be pretty 000? choppy. Come on,
2: extrapolate that. Soft we,
3: landing choppy? will easily give you five thousand. Yeah, we've said that before. <laughs> yeah. we, 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 we we published that before.
4: Binky so measured. Binky had a tough year last year, same tone. Great year this year, same tone.
2: He had a tough so year measured, last all the time. year because you make the call, but the x-axis you never know. T- the life of a
4: strategist, <laughs> Binky, just quickly. Yeah. Does it feel a whole lot better when things are going right, or do you get nervous that things are about to go wrong? Are you constantly paranoid? How do you, how do you think oh, about I'm it? i
3: constantly paranoid. What, what is it like? <laughs> you're asking me this on air. Yeah. <laughs> What's yeah.
4: your approach to that? Last year Harry. was tough. I've talked about that with you many times. This year is better. You know, How do you approach things when you're right?
3: Uh, the same way as you approach them when you're wrong. Um, you ask yourself, well, what have you got right? And I mean, now you're right for the right reason. And, and what have you got wrong? And uh, you adjust your view accordingly. What was the lesson from last year? that helped you with this year? Uh, The lesson from last year was a confirmation of my view early in the year that we would get a massive amount of anxiety from the Fed, but the the anxiety was of their own creation because they decided for a variety of reasons to wait a long time. So when I listen to the FOMC now, I hear calm. I mean, and that that, that re- reaffirms my view that a lot of their nervousness, yes, about inflation, uh, still about inflation. But you know, they were at zero to start the year. We are now at five, yeah. and 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 so there's a lot less reason to be anxious.
2: Excuse to get out of the triple levered dollar cash Maybe. fund. I mean, Maybe. first order,
4: hundred shares of Nvidia. Hey, Binky,
3: this was great. Yeah. Tons of
4: respect for you. but It's always great Pleasure. to catch up, Thank Binky. You. Chatter of Deutsche Bank.
2: Kathy Jones joins us right now. They're fixed income strategists. And I'm going to go to someone we were talking about with your exquisite ability to play piano, which is Gershwin George, where he said life is a lot like jazz. Boy, you better improvise. How do you improvise in the bond market with the oddity of post-pandemic economics and the oddity of the, the ambiguity, I should say, almost about where we are right now?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that's really the challenge not only strategists have, but also the Fed is facing, right? How do they set policy in an environment that's really very unfamiliar? Um, the way we've been doing it is simply either barbelling or laddering, mm-hmm. and not trying to play every every little up and down in the market. So if you know you can stay short and try to roll out and time it perfectly, but there's a lot of reinvestment risk if you miss it because these moves are right. so fast.
2: Are you doing this with combining your work with Liz, Lizanne Saunders? Are you doing it with the understanding there will be a jump condition in the short end or even a dramatic movement in the long end, or do you see sort of stability out there as you barbell or ladder?
6: Yeah, We think in the bond market, it'll be more stable. We had huge volatility in the first half of the year. And I think that was the market readjusting to Fed policy and and all the surprises that we've had. And yet we haven't gone anywhere, right? We had all this volatility and yields pretty much from two years out, are about the same as they were at the beginning of the year. Uh, but we think second half should be somewhat more stable, I mean, barring some sort of crazy financial market event that seems to happen every six weeks. But uh, barring that, uh, I think that we should have a fairly stable uh, move here.
5: There's a sort of renegade theory out there right now, trying to justify perhaps some of the moves and some of the resilience in the economy, or else it's just true, which is we've been talking about the lure of 5 5.5%. Five on cash as a negative, as sucking liquidity out of the market. But some people say it's actually stimulative because all of a sudden you can get returns on your cash, which gives you more money to go out and spend that much more. Which is it?
6: Uh, I, I guess I—that's <laughs> a tough question to answer. I think the five percent, the higher yields, are more punishment than reward, right? Because the number of savers that are actually benefiting from that uh, are, are doing fine, but you have a whole bunch of people who are companies and individuals trying to borrow, either get a mortgage, a car loan, companies trying to refinance at higher rates. Uh, I would say it's more negative than positive. It's
5: negative in theory, but this is what I keep hearing from people that nobody who's buying a home is paying percent mortgage rate. Everybody's getting some other mortgage rate. Companies can get pretty low rates if they're a good company. On average, they're high, but those companies that have to pay through the nose aren't <clears> borrowing <throat> at those rates. So this interest rate effect, the punishment isn't actually bleeding into the economy, and the reward is actually driving even more investment. Is that an accurate way to understand the dynamic that's been so confounding so far this year?
6: Well, I would say and the credit conditions have been um, easier if you go to the capital markets than, you know, it would normally be under these circumstances. But if you're a, like I say, you're a low credit borrower, uh, those costs really are going up. And we're seeing a lot of weakness at the low end of the credit spectrum. And um, I think it's just a matter of time. It's hard to believe that we can have all this tightening, 500 basis points in a very short period of time, uh, QT also at the same time, and not have an economic effect.
2: One year forward, laddered or barbelled, whatever the blend is, full faith and credit corporate, are you clipping a coupon or can you actually manage and position for total return?
6: I think that the bulk of what you'll get will come from the coupon, but you can position to get some total you Are you
2: going to give so. me a double-digit total return? Not double-digit. I, I think that I, would be very get unlikely. If I 11%, I can't come to Schwab.
6: You know, <laughs> no, I, I'm to sorry. No, I think 11%. Well,
2: that was just folks. I'm, I'm busting chops with Kathy Jones. That was a discussion from about 10, 12, 20 years ago. It, that was fun, wasn't it? It
4: was. It was. <laughs> Can I give you a stat to build off what Lisa said? Please. One-third of homes in this country bought with cash.
2: I noticed. I'm glad you bring that
4: up. Highest share in like a decade. That was also the stat, by the way, for the whole of last year two from Redfin. So one third, Lisa, to your point.
5: Yeah, they're, they're bought in cash. And then the others are bought from developers straight up that are offering them much lower rates or they're refinancing existing uh, or they're sort of taking on other loans for lower. Again, the point being, the impulse isn't making its way into slowing the economy in a material way. And this is the reason why people are wondering, why hasn't it been more painful?
4: Oh, they're buying new homes because they old ones aren't for sale. Because exactly. they've got people in them with mortgages at 3%. This housing market is totally distorted. Completely. It's totally, totally distorted.
2: It, I would suggest it's always been distorted in the pandemic made it shockingly i mean the rent now is four thousand three hundred something jonathan miller miller samuel it's nuts but ask yourself
4: this tom this is a big question to ask and it's connected to monetary policy and builds on what lisa's talking about because it's so important are the long available lags longer like 30 years long because mortgages at three percent are like 30 years long and everyone did that i hope you did that i didn't do that i wish i had done that using the term everyone loosely or are we just finding out this economy is way more resilient kathy and that five percent doesn't get it done
6: Yeah, I think it's the long and variable lags are longer. And, you know, let's put housing aside and let's look at all the other costs that are going up. And also the fact that we've had sub 2% growth now for several quarters. Manufacturing sector is really very weak. And um, Mm -hmm. we're starting to see the ISM numbers on the service side come down as well, new orders. So I think it's been longer because we had such a fiscal and, and monetary policy response to the pandemic that it's taking longer for it to work its way out. But it's hard for me to believe, again, that that's not going to happen over time. Um, and I think that's the, the Fed's whole hold on to high rates, because if inflation continues to come down, holding is tightening, and oh, particularly with QT going on in the this background. This such a
4: good point that's missed by so many people, and I totally agree with you. You can keep the nominal rate steady, but the real rate shifts. Right. That's the point, right?
6: Right. And, and real rates are up. And if they stay up for another year or so – um, that's going to have an impact on, on the economy. Okay,
2: 10 year real rate 1.54%. I modeled out 2.05% as sort of before all this idiocy. Do you people suggest we'll see a 10 year real rate that'll migrate back to the sort of the moving averages of another time and place?
6: Uh, I think 2% might be a little bit on the high side for a 10 year, but um, we'd be actually looking at tips right here and locking in some of those real yields.
4: In Interesting. This week. Kathy, it's good to see you. Thank Kathy you. Jones, a child swap.
0: Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations, look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio.
2: What we're going to do is talk to somebody who has an immense respect for legal pros uh, on this. Terry Haynes is founder of Pangea Policy with decades of duty on Capitol Hill. Terry, you know, I go to Lawfare like everybody else because these guys are the adults in the room and they say, wait for the document. What are we waiting for?
7: Well, we're waiting to see what the actual indictment says and what the charges actually are. You know, you, you and John are absolutely right. You know, there's a lot of, you know, three sources say. And, you know, the, the former president uh, wasted no time, not only in getting out there and talking about it, but one thing I found significant was uh, the first uh, fundraising email showed up at about a half an hour after yeah. uh, made that announcement. So, you know, there's clearly an, a, a an attempt by him not only to frame this thing before the would the indictment whatever it is comes out, as well as uh, raise money and, uh, and you know and, and gin up his followers.
2: You know, Terry, my experience here goes as far as Perry Mason, maybe Law and Order. So you're going to help us right now. To me, there's a massive distinguishing feature between state courts in New York or any other state for that matter, and a federal court anywhere in this case in Miami. What is the state court? versus federal court distinction for the former
7: president. Well, it's a couple of things. One is the uh, is the sorts of offenses. I mean, there are things that are uh, that are exclusively federal offenses, and you have in the. Uh, in the Trump case, you have kind of not only documents, but kind of uh, also cons- uh, investigations about January 6th matters. A lot of the state court matters have to do with uh, uh, things like his uh, his business and whether uh, whether his business records were on the up and up. Uh, uh, the 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 tax evasion matter that uh, that that they went through in Manhattan, uh, those sorts of things, but also the uh, also, one one of the cases, which is a Georgia case, uh, possibly, has to do with whether or not he interfered with Georgia state election law as a result of the uh, the January sixth matter, asking Georgia officials to find him votes, that sort of thing. Uh, so, but so the uh, the the matter really is kind of civil versus criminal, and it also has to do with uh, the. the The degree to which uh, the former president can be punished either by incarceration or fines or the like.
5: Terry, John picked up on the right point here, which is how do the other Republican potential candidates really step up and respond to this? Do they embrace the sort of deep state conspiracy or do they say this just shows he's not fit to run?
7: Uh, you know, the answer is, uh, Lisa, is both. Uh, you know, they have to attack Trump head on. Uh, I think you'll see an intensification of what I call the pack swarm mentality, where the pack of the, uh, the, the these candidates all talk about Trump's unfitness to run and how he's not the best person and why. Uh, and at the same time... Uh, th- they hedge their bets a little bit by raising concerns about uh, about the justice system and there are questions unresolved questions about not only whether or not yeah, you know, the the potential indictment here uh, is different treatment. I mean, remember, Trump's not the only person that's uh, that's had uh, that took records home with him. Uh, that includes uh, his vice president. That includes the sitting president. Uh, potentially others. Uh, but also, there's kind of a broader historical question about how these laws were enforced. And uh, and you know, the president, the president Trump is trying to make a case that both. There's different treatment here for him, as well as a situation where these laws were never enforced in the way that the Justice Department is proposing to enforce those laws. Uh, you know, those are both questions that the, the Justice Department is going to have to answer as this case moves forward.
5: Terry, you mentioned that the fundraising emails went out right after uh, the announcement by the former president. Does this type of issue have the same resonance with voters that it used to?
7: Oh, I think it has uh, resonance. You, you notice in the Trump statement, he's pushing the buttons about, you know, they're, they're, you know they, they talked about the Russia hoax and that was wrong. They talked about this, that was wrong, That this, that was wrong. Now this is the, he refers to this as the boxes hoax. Uh, so he's trying to gin that up. Uh, what I will say on, uh, on on the primary battle is that you know forget about the uh, the national beauty contests. If you look at the early states, you've got Trump about forty percent in the field, about sixty percent, and I think that. Uh, what happens is that a lot of these candidates really kind of combine to take Trump down and at the same time uh, appropriate the policies and say, hey, look, I'm your uh, I'm your safer
4: alternative. It's is so messy down in Washington, D.C., as you know, I just wonder how much pressure will build now on House Republicans to push up their investigations into the sitting president. How much pressure is going to be on them to do that now?
7: Oh, I I think there's no pressure on them. I think they put pressure on themselves to do that, frankly. Uh, One thing I I, want to say here is that just because Trump, I think, is less likely to become president as a result of all this doesn't mean that Biden's more likely to become president. One reason for that is that those investigations, I think, intensify and ramp up. The other reason is Should an alternative to Trump emerge, and we're really not going to know that for six months or more. I mean, but if the Republican nominee isn't Trump, uh, you know, that person is better ca- able and better capable of, ba- of of putting Biden on the back foot on policies as well as his uh, health and his age. So uh, this doesn't mean, this isn't uh, unalloyed good news for Biden by any ma- means.
4: Terry Haines of Panjshir. Terry, always appreciate it, sir. Brief, sir. Thank you, sir. Just you. fantastic.
2: Jeffrey Curry is going to come out with his version of Fooled by Randomness on Oil, Global Added Commodity at Research at Goldman Sachs. Jeff Curry, I, I say this with immense respect for your bulletproof University of Chicago microeconomics and econometrics. How did oil fool you by its randomness in the last 12 months?
8: Well, I have to say we have never been this wrong for this long without seeing evidence to change our views. Um, you know, obviously, some of the upside has been taken away um, by recent events, with you know the sanctioned oil surprising to the upside, whether it is Iran, Russia, Venezuela, um, and more destocking. But the core thesis still very much remains intact, um, and I think one of the big drivers is you know you've lost 250 million barrels of paper length in this market. Um, we're back to where the market was as sh- is as short as it was during COVID when we saw negative prices, and you've erased the overall length going back into the early 2000s. Um, and I've chalked this up to you know ultimately a broad what we call the great destocking. High interest rates are forcing destocking of physical barrels, destocking of sanctioned barrels destocking of SPRs, destocking of finished goods, even destocking of financial paper barrels. So we have been just continuously selling um, for about six months um, to to nine months now.
5: Can you elaborate a little bit? Because for people who are not in the nitty gritty, a lot of what you said was perhaps a bit opaque. The connection of high interest rates to a, a lack of interest in buying oil on a whole range of areas or a lack of sort of stockpiling physical or paper crude
8: let's just go through yeah let's go through the economics let's say to borrow money today to buy a barrel of oil because you got to you know finance your 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 physical inventory let's say it's seven eight percent somewhere like that um libor is paying you five and a quarter that's your opportunity cost of putting your money into a risk-free investment so your net cost of holding physical inventory run somewhere around 13, potentially even 15% in this environment. Um, Why are you going to do that? You've got NVIDIA and NASDAQ going up. There's so many better places to put your money. And I think the other point too, um, oil, copper, and the rest of these markets don't have a positive carry. So they cost you to own it, cost you to store it. You're going to drain down these inventories as much as you can. So Oil, <clears throat> copper, they are a liability right now. They are not an asset. And until they become an asset, no one's going to want to hold them, hold them in an inventory or hold them in a paper form. And so you could just think about that the cost of holding these, these commodities has risen so much that ultimately you're destocking. Now, we've been waiting nearly a decade for the Iranian floating storage to discharge. It's finally discharging right now which shows you nobody really wants to hold um, you know, this commodity. Um, we think that's going to change. And I think it has to start with lower inventories, forcing what we call a backwardation, which is a positive carry in the curve. Then somebody will want to own it.
5: This is fascinating because for years, people were decrying the financialization of crude as sort of a a bet on the macro economy. Are you saying that it is no longer in the same kind of way, that this is basically uh, where it is traded, but it's actually a liability now that the financialization has come to such a place where people look at it as comparable to an interest-bearing type of instrument? And you're waiting for some sort of not i want to say crisis but a complete lack of inventory to spur prices in such an extreme way that you get a violent shift up that really forces a hand of people who are left kind of in the dust
8: i thought i am not going to say it's 100% interest rates it's fear of recession why people don't want to mm-hmm. uh, own these the government discharged their reserves due over fears of inflation so there's other factors at play here but i think your broader point is absolutely right we think about when was oil um, financialized. In the 2000s, when interest rates, you know, it was right after September 11th in 2001, when interest rates first went to near zero, um, that's when you started to see the explosion mm. in the financialization of oil and commodities. And we stayed into this, right. this loose money environment for nearly 15, 20 years. And now money costs something. There are a set of
2: world-class leaders, and you're one of them, Jeff Curry, on this, and with the acuity of the uh, what I'm going to call almost the general equilibrium theory of hydrocarbons. You parachute into Riyadh right now, and you have to advise the Saudis on the elasticities of supply and demand around this new world, which is the old world of a cost of money. How do you advise Saudi Arabia in this new world of higher nominal and real interest
8: rates? Their market power has never been higher. Um, And one of the reasons why is you combine the higher cost of money combined with, um, you know, issues around the cost of funding hydrocarbon type of investments. They're the only game in town. They have no competition right now. When we look at the cut they made in October, that was the very first preemptive cut we've ever seen OPEC do, and we just saw two more cuts announced in the last, um, you know, the last three months. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they don't have fear of competition. Yes, the oil that's coming on market is Russian, Iranian, and Venezuelan sanctioned oil, and eventually you'll run out of it, and there's nothing behind it. Um, but is there competition from the rest of the world? The answer is really no.
2: Is the United States not ignorant but unaware of the international dynamics of oil, of moving oil up to Japan across the Pacific Rim and all the dynamics of the Middle East? Have we gotten lazy?
8: I think there's a bigger fo- focus on immediate-term issues, things like inflation fighting, which is why we saw such a sharp rundown in in the the SPR. And 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 you know, you're talking, you put all the SPRs together, it was 250 million barrels drawn down. That is a lot of oil. So I think the focus from a policy perspective is get the inflation down and and keep it down. But here's a fact I like to throw out. You know, you look at core CPI, it's somewhere around 5.5. It was at that level, you know, going back nearly two years ago. What's changed is oil prices went down, taking headline from 9 down to 4.5.
5: Just quickly, Jeff, do you think that that's the reason why the U.S. is not refilling the SPR more aggressively because they're still concerned about inflation and that that could, on the margins, push prices up?
8: I think with you know the showdown over the debt ceiling, getting money to go buy oil would be really difficult to come by. But that aside, listen to France, listen to Germany. The focus now is building strategic reserves of green metals, you know like battery metals like copper, lithium, cobalt. Um, so if you're going to build uh, strategic reserves, you're probably going to do it in you know, the green economy commodities, not in the old economy commodities.
2: Jeff, where's oil in a year? I know it's an unfair question given all the ambiguities out there right now, but I've got to ask. I mean, we're, we're down, 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 right, wrong, whatever. Scope out where we are in 12 months.
8: Yeah, I, I, our view is you're going to be see substantial physical inventory draws because of these OPEC production cuts, um, particularly during third quarter as well as in fourth quarter. That's going to push us up into the low 90s. Now the question is will you bring the investor back into this market and by the way i put a question mark on it because it'll have to be a, a new class of investor it take that investor buying to push you back up towards mm-hmm. 100. um we're not you know i know a lot of them have gone left and it'll be difficult to get them back but i think the key question fundamentally we can get this market higher and i think we get right. once you turn oil into an asset Um, you'll attract capital back to it. But I don't think it's going to be the same cast of characters. Jeffrey Curry, thank
2: you so much. Just absolutely brilliant there with Goldman Sachs.
0: Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, Finremember, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you?
2: Right now, we are going to digress, and we are thrilled to bring you someone who runs an economy that is better than good. She's picking up a trophy in New York uh, this evening. Uh, Nadia Calvino is Spanish Vice President, Minister for the Economy and Digitalization of number one performing always, Spain, in the continent John, why is Spain always a number one performer? What, what We're talking what's about football. The,
4: the pixie <laughs> dust there. We're talking about football. Well, I'm Real Madrid. football. Madrid. Barcelona. Yeah, you know,
2: I mean, there it is. But the answer is Spain is unique. We're thrilled that the vice president could join us uh, this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. I've got to go to the weather. IMF will meet in Marrakesh. And the idea is there is a drought in Africa coming over that will grossly destabilize the agricultural dynamo that is Spain. And quite frankly, there's worry about drinking water as well. How urgent is the drought in southern Spain?
9: Well, it is a very serious issue because uh, Spain is, is a world superpower in the agri-food sector, and so the drought is having an impact on, on the harvest in, in some areas, having to do with cereal, for example. But uh, drinking water is guaranteed, and we're investing very heavily, actually more than 6 billion euros, in the digitalization of water management and the efficient infrastructures for water management, You may know or not that Mm -hmm. Spain is the second most efficient country in the world after Israel in water management. And so we're heavily investing in that so that we can continue to be highly performant. There's
2: so many other issues. I'm going to leave it there, but there's much to talk about on that. I'm sure we will in the coming months. What has changed is you and uh, Mr. Sanchez have a snap election to deal with. Our Alonzo Soto says this is absolutely front and center. How will you approach the snap election?
9: You know the economy's performing is is outstanding, as you rightly pointed out. It's I better did okay than good. There.
2: I read the notes. So is, I did okay. Yeah,
9: you did very okay, well, actually. It's, no, it's better than good. And mm-hmm. uh, indeed, I mean, there's strong growth, strong job creation. Inflation is down to around 3% already in Spain. So the performance of the performance of economy is outstanding. And I, I trust, you know, that Spanish citizens will, will actually— But the wiser uh,
2: are snap—I don't mean to interrupt. but This is important. The political turmoil in Spain is tangible. Hmm. Why— Given a good inflation and good economy picture.
9: Well, we had regional and local elections, and they what we saw there was a rise of the right and more importantly, the extreme right. This movement is not only is not only happening in Spain. you were talking about it. Of course, it's relevant here in the US. It is happening throughout the EU. and this is a movement that uh, I personally hope uh, it does not continue. And President Sánchez uh, decided to call the snap election so that we can have clarity. Spain will take over the presidency of the EU in July and we need to have clarity and a stable government and not be you know, in the middle of a, of a campaign for the presidency. There's
4: still work to do before we get there. Vice President Galvino, one thing you mentioned there was the drought and that's had an effect on price pressure. Now you've made some progress on inflation. You do have an anti-inflation package due to expire at the end of this month. Is that something you're thinking about renewing?
9: Well, we're assessing which measures we should continue to have in the second part of the year and which do no longer make sense because the evolution in in international energy markets, you were just discussing that energy prices have gone down. We are in pre-war levels already. So we have to see whether those measures should continue or not beyond June. And likewise for VAT, so indirect taxes on, on food and others.
4: Could you give me some insight on that now?
9: No, because we're in the midst of the analysis and we, you know, what we have been doing since the pandemic hit us is adjust measures every three or six months so that we could have a flexible approach and an efficient use of public resources. I mean, we talk about public money when we reduce taxes or we give public support. And so we have to be very focused and very efficient. This has worked well so far. And that explains why the Spanish economy is doing so well. And we should continue on the same line of responsibility and effectiveness. How much have you enjoyed
5: the euro being weak versus the dollar and sort of the tourism boom that has emerged on
9: the heels of that? Well, we've seen a very strong performance of the tourism sector indeed, and um, April has been a record month in terms of number of visitors and in terms of the revenues of the sector and we expect the summer to be also uh, extremely positive, but the current account surplus that Spain is showing, and this is a historical first, you know, never in in history did we have this surplus particularly when we have have so strong growth uh, but what's remarkable is not the good performance of tourism exports but non-tourism related services showing that the spanish economy is gaining competitiveness and market share not only the goods sectors but the non-tourism related services are being you know very positive and pulling growth up huh? Is that what you're trying to emphasize right now, the sort
5: of manufacturing side, the non-tourism side, even as the tourism side really is one of the main drivers
9: of the strength that has in some cases been unprecedented in Spain? What I think should be highlighted is what we're talking about is not just a bouncing back or a strong recovery uh, from a macroeconomic or macro magnitude point of view, but that there is a structural modernization and transformation of the Spanish economy ongoing, which has to do with the new green economy, which has to do with digitalization. And it has a lot to do with the European funds, next generation EU uh, investment and reform program. We have front loaded that investment and reform plan and the results are already very
4: Have you had a chat with Elon Musk at all? No. Should you have a conversation with him Mm -hmm. because he's reportedly in talks to build an EV factory in Spain,
9: yes. I mean, uh, we we hear regularly, I should say. You know, we hear about a possible. Uh, <coughs> have you tried to
4: reach out and have that conversation? Well, I,
9: I personally don't have don't have a, a relationship with him, or I haven't had a chance to talk to him. But I am sure that the prime minister, the president's office, uh, is in contact with anybody that's interested in investing right. in Spain. Due to you know, thanks to the low energy prices, high penetration of renewables, and the competitiveness of the Spanish economy, we are no. attracting unprecedented <laughs> investment. <laughs> Asking
2: for a friend, I was in Washington, and the Dutch finance minister could not get us tickets to Vermeer. The whole team wanted to go to Amsterdam and see the Vermeer. Can we? Can you get us tickets to the Prado here with the Picasso opening up? I mean, 50th anniversary of, of <laughs> uh, this, this oh. giant of Spain with El Greco. We need tickets to the Prado. Can
9: we, I mean, uh, Tom, anything you need. There, there, we, you go. Know. <laughs> there we go. You know I have Kinda, a sweet spot here. The, the <laughs> last week of
2: June from
4: Madrid. <clears throat> Vice President Calvino, Nadia, thank you. It's good to see you.
2: Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keane, and this is Bloomberg.
1: The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, c COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit bloomberglive.com slash 2024 to learn more.